0: Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honor. What's at the end of this case. How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start sure, with the text of the Second Amendment, Your Honor. I I I think that that could be viewed as political. That that would be. How about the First Amendment?
1: No, Your Honor. I don't I don't think the First Amendment.
0: You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Texas.
1: Welcome to episode 187 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases today, two from the Illinois Appellate Courts and one from the Seventh Circuit, and then one more we will cover in the COVID-19 BI Plus segment, also from the Seventh Circuit, as well as a, a Washington Supreme Court BI case, a lot to cover today. First case today is from the Illinois Appellate Court 4th District, Downs versus Peters. The second is Laforte versus Expedia Inc. That was heard before the Illinois Appellate Court 3rd District recently. And the third and final is from the Seventh Circuit, Axis versus American Specialty, turning to our first case. What is required for a plaintiff to agree to settle a personal injury case in Illinois? Can the actions of the plaintiff's attorney be used to confirm that the plaintiff granted authority to her, uh, her attorney to settle the case? What is the proper procedure for the circuit court to follow, enrolling on a section 2619A6, where the plaintiff does not offer a counter affidavit? If the circuit court holds an evidentiary hearing, it makes findings of fact. What is the proper standard of review on appeal following dismissal? Those are among the many questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court, 4th District, decides Downs versus Peters. The plaintiff's counsel sent a policy limit demand without authority, and when that was agreed to by the defendant, counsel had a discussion with the plaintiff, following which, among other things, he advised the court that there was a settlement. The plaintiff refused to execute the settlement agreement, but notwithstanding, The defendant's insurer tendered payment, which was deposited in the plaintiff's counsel's trust account. The plaintiff proceeded with the lawsuit, and the defendant moved to dismiss. In opposition, the plaintiff argued that she did not give her lawyer authority to settle the case, and the circuit court held a hearing at which she testified consistently with that. The circuit court found that the plaintiff settled the case by communicating her agreement to her lawyer and dismissed the case. Shockingly, there was no mention of Section 2, 2301 in the oral argument, perhaps it was mentioned in the briefs, but that controls and confirms the settlement is the confirmation of agreement and the release is the plaintiff's performance in exchange for the payment of money by the defendant. Pat us about this interesting case.
2: Thanks, Dan. Uh, it is a very interesting case and it, it, I've developed a bit of a specialty over the last several years about s- settling cases and that's, uh, um, that, uh, has started with dealing with Medicare issues, which was uh, you know starting about 15 years ago was a real issue, and and then it's kind of grown into dealing with these 2301 issues as they as they collide, because you know from the date it was passed, 2301 conflicts with federal federal law, and so it puts carriers in a real trick bag as to what to do. Usually, there's workarounds, there's things you can do. But it, it creates a real problem. And what 2301 says is that the uh, what 2301 says is that upon confirmation of the settlement, written confirmation of the settlement, the insurer will tender within 14 days the release and then the check ha- and then the, the carrier has 30 days from receipt of all of the documents necessary to issue the check, to issue the check. So there's two time limits in there, and obviously it was the the 14 days, and in particular the 30 days, that's the headline for for this statute. But the statute does so much more with regards to what is a settlement, and it makes clear that the settlement occurs when the lawyers agree that there's a settlement, and then the release is the performance. And in this case, it seems that the plaintiff, um, the... uh, the the release uh, in this case or the demand in this case apparently was issued without authority uh, which is a problem I, I, I that seems to be what happened and then when cause there's a hundred thousand dollar policy and apparently the injuries you know well exceed that or at least in the plaintiff's view exceed that and frankly it seems the carrier agreed because they were willing to tender it uh, they, they they saw that they they were if they didn't accept it they're insured would be put at, at risk and so then we have this issue with um, having tendered the re- tendered the uh, release now the, now the plaintiff won't sign it and her but her lawyer has taken action several actions the plan, the defense lawyer lists like six things including telling the court hey the case is settled that indicated that he had authority to settle the case. Now, the, the law has generally been, or the, the law generally talks about express authority of the lawyer to settle the case, and in the absence of express authority, there is no settlement. Now, I don't understand why we're only talking about express authority. There are all kinds of other authority in the law, and it's quite the case that once the defendant has a lawyer, and the plaintiff has a lawyer, that The lawyers are the ones who talk to each other. They don't talk to their respective parties. And so it's not like the defense lawyer can call up the plaintiff and say, Miss Plaintiff, are we settled? You can't do that. That would be a violation of the rules of professional conduct. The only person that the defense lawyer can talk to is opposing counsel, the plaintiff's lawyer, who plainly has apparent authority to bind that plaintiff Uh, and, the, the, because they're their lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else they going to do. And so when the plaintiff's lawyer tells the defense lawyer we're settled and tells the court we're settled, it sure seems like we're settled. Uh, and even if the plaintiff's lawyer acts, acted outside of his authority, certainly the defendant is relying to their detriment that there's a settlement. There's things they wouldn't be doing. I mean, this is a case that seemed to this settlement seemed to have occurred early on in the case, which you can certainly envision a circumstance later on in a case where they've blown deadlines and not done things they would otherwise do to protect the interests of their of their, of their defendant, you know, taking depositions, noticing uh, or disclosing witnesses, things of this nature that could, filing motions for summary judgment, things of this nature, that if not done are now barred because they believe that there was a settlement. But even in, but in this situation, they relied and they had a settlement, they sent her a $100,000 check and the check got cashed. And it sat in the plaintiff's trust account, where it belongs, plaintiff's attorney's trust account, where it belongs, until it can get distributed. And then she didn't issue the check. Now, that's one of the perils of issuing a check before you have a release. Um, Okay, that that certainly is a thing uh, that that can happen. But the insurance company wanted to get rid of it. And so they issued the check, and now they're done, and they're just going to wait for the release. But that never happened. And so now she proceeds with the case and they move to dismiss and say, there's a hearing or say that there's a settlement. So then we come to this. So there's all those issues that are wrapped up in this regarding, you know, authority and whether he had authority and, and, and what kind of authority, uh, not only a parent agency, but also implied authority to enter into the settlement. And maybe there's a malpractice case at the end of this rainbow, which doesn't sound great. Certainly not a pot of gold, but, that's the remedy of the plaintiff. But one wonders, what else is she going to get? Assuming that this plaint- this defendant has no other assets and assuming there's no other policy, what is she going to get besides a worthless judgment more than the $100,000 that that's sitting in her lawyer's trust account? There, Then there's the procedural issues of how this got decided. There was no counter affidavit. The court just jumped to a hearing, and as Justice Doherty pointed out, doesn't seem quite the right procedure, which raises all kinds of questions about what is the appropriate standard of review. The defendant obviously pressed manifest weight of the evidence, while the plaintiff pressed de novo in certain respects and manifest weight in in, in others. And so the procedural, the procedure followed here is a is a real disaster. And I don't know what the court's going to, how they're going to untangle this. And that may be That may be a result. That may result in the case being reversed because the proper procedure wasn't followed. And then we come to one other issue, and that is that the defendant, the plaintiff, was represented by the lawyer in the on the appeal. And I wonder if that was proper, and whether that was there, whether there's not, whether or not there's a conflict there. Um, Doing this kind of work, you know, this would be the kind of thing that if I were counseling the plaintiff's lawyer, I would say, you need to tell your carrier. And if the carrier knew, I would imagine they, they might've gotten repair counsel involved to assist in this. And they may have, and they may have decided that he can proceed in this fashion, but it's, it's kind of, it's kind of dicey in this particular circumstance. So there's a lot of issues here. Um, Agency, procedure, ethics, and that's why we wanted to talk about it because it's a really uh, it, it's a dense case and there's a lot that um, we a lot we don't know because the oral argument there there's a lot of facts I think we're going to find out a lot when we see the uh, opinion but I, I'm hoping that I, I recently had to deal with one of these issues where the other side said we didn't have a settlement I claimed we did and the law was really disappointing that there isn't a discussion of the full panoply of why wouldn't the agency principles. All the agency kind, all different kinds of agency apply in this context. Um, and I. I so we'll, we'll see what happens with this. Dan, uh, what, what are your thoughts?
1: I agree with you, Pat. A lot to unpack here. And you had posted on LinkedIn and asked some of the plaintiff's lawyers that we know, both of us, uh, what the procedure is. Because, like you said, it talks about explicit authority. And we've all been involved in these types of situations, especially, if, like you said, in the insurance context. If you don't, um, you know, insurers are uh, take the risk, right, if they get a settlement demand uh, for policy limits and they have good bases or believe they have good bases and, and reject that, they, they then risk, you know, have a, uh, opening up the, the, the checkbook. And so a lot, a lot of issues here. Um, like I said, it, it, it'll be helpful, I think, when the opinion comes out. Hopefully it'll have some of the facts that we don't know from just oral arguments. Um, but it's, uh, it's very interesting, like you said, why, why there's not a whole laundry list of, of, authority, because as you said, once you're represented, it's inappropriate. There, there would be no way for, uh, one party to reach out to the other party, uh, directly once, once, uh, you know, if they've done that, that, that causes issues and problems. And so a lot of, a lot of issues here, like you said, the check being paid, uh, before settlement, that happens sometimes for a variety of reasons, and so um, it's a it's an interesting case. I I thought the same thing when you mentioned that the attorney represents uh, her, uh, and whether there's a conflict there because you know if this goes awry, right? If there wasn't authority, there there may be issues for that attorney uh, in the handling of the case. So it is interesting, but maybe that was done. Like you said, maybe there was some. A discussion so it'll be interesting to see when this comes out uh, what additional facts we don't know right now that maybe makes uh, this uh, this uh, clearer but like you said it's it's pretty surprising like you said that you have a case recently and there's no real guidance or real case law and I think well there our- is
2: it's just limited to the express authority context right,
1: right. which seems absurd right right so it's limited and I know you asked if there was express authority, one of the folks on LinkedIn talked about some things, and then you asked about, well, yeah, but is there express, you know, is there something directly on point? And it's just uh, interesting that there's not, you know, as we've talked about a long time of a lot of uh, issues in Illinois and elsewhere, and, and it's surprising still that there's unanswered questions or unanswered guidance on some aspects of procedure and practice.
2: In, indeed. So we'll we'll see what happens here. Maybe it is only express authority, and I'd have to understand why it's only express authority in, in this one con- in this one context. You can only have one type of agency relationship. That doesn't seem that that's quite right. Uh, we well, the haven't. one thing
1: the one thing you you uh, asked plaintiffs' lawyers. I don't I don't know that you got a good answer. Was do do they actually get written express authority, or do they memorialize it with their clients? I know on the on the defense side, when we or corporate side, we. We get that in writing, uh, what the express authority is, because then there's no doubt. But on the planner side, I I just don't know how how the practice is.
2: Yeah, I I can't imagine, you you know, dealing with a sophisticated entity, you know, they usually are going to have their claim note that says what they said, this kind of a thing. But I still want to have it because adjusters change, supervisors change, this kind of a thing. And As I said on LinkedIn, you know, on more than one occasion, that email that I've gotten has served as uh, my get out of jail free card. Right. Say, I didn't give you that authority. Hell, you did. Here it is. <laughs> and I acted within the authority you gave me. Because usually they'll give you an amount of money and then it's your job to negotiate within that authority. That's typically how it works. Right? Not always, but but typically. you know, Some, they want you to go back each time and that's kind of annoying. It doesn't happen very often. But what you're dealing with an unsophisticated person, which most plaintiffs' personal injury types are, these are people that don't regularly work in the courts and don't regularly sue people. Um, I would think it would be all the more important to get... You know, written confirmation that this, you know, whether it's text message, carrier pigeon, email, something that say, you know, this is the amount of the authority, especially before you're going to make a policy limit demand or, or, or any of these kinds of things. So with that, uh, we'll uh, we'll take our first break and come back with uh, Laforte versus Expedia.
0: Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at PodiumAndPanelPodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: Welcome back to segment two of episode 187 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And this uh, this particular case sounds like uh, déjà vu because I just went through a similar circumstance. Uh, is a third party travel website responsible to the customer when the hotel charges its can charge sorry changes its cancellation policy? That is one of the issues in Fort versus Expedia Inc. That was heard before the Illinois Appellate Court Third District. That was argued this week. The plaintiff selected only refundable options when she searched for hotels on Expedia, but agreed, all, but agreed also to click the terms of service that relieved Expedia of liability for the conduct of the hotel. The plaintiff did not get her money back when she decided to change her reservation. During the course of the litigation, the hotel was dismissed. The plaintiff contends that the representative of Expedia could not testify upon personal knowledge whether Expedia had the plaintiff's money or if the hotel had it. Expedia disputed the contention and argued that the trial court's ruling was against the manifest weight of the evidence. Circuit court ruled in favor of the plaintiff and awarded punitive damages, uh, and the defendant appealed. This is also another case where which punitive damages have been awarded based upon attorney's fees, a similar issue raised in a case we recently discussed, Segez versus Spanky Drainage District. So lots of issues here again. Uh, and uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about this case?
1: Sure, Pat, and as you mentioned, this happens sometimes if you go on these search sites. Um, the appellant the lawyer for Expedia uh, on several occasions read the entire disclaimer, and, and as any of us that click on any terms of service know, these things are, are uh, very boilerplate, very expansive, very dismissive of any obligations or, or anything. I, uh, Pat, one of the things that, that, that uh, I, I had never heard before and I wasn't aware of uh, in, in the discussion with the advocates in this case and some of the questions is the manner in which the hotels that operate on Expedia or other travel pieces get paid. They, they kept talking about these gift cards or credit cards from, issued from Expedia for the cost of the hotel that was booked on Expedia it seems in this modern world that we have this modern age of technology that there would be some kind of debits and credits and just some uh, transfer of, of funds certainly a, how
2: insurance brokers do it with insurance companies right uh, they have a they have a monthly set, settle up you know they settle up at the end of the month right. or the end of the quarter all the money's going back and <laughs> forth and you can imagine you know it'll be orders of magnitude larger with a uh, with a travel site like this but yeah why is it so hard
1: I would think it's a bordero or something, but in any event, what, what uh, the the interesting position taken by the appellant, and I think it was a pretty uh, decent line, was she referred several times to an agreement by A not to hold B liable for cease conduct is not against public policy, and that's uh, uh, what 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 happened here. A would be the customer who, would, as you said, went on, and 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 what happened here was there's a dispute about whether or not there was any reservation at all whether Expedia had transferred the money to Hilton.
2: Well, there was. they knew that there had been a reservation. The question is what kind of reservation. What the reservation. money,
1: yeah. what kind of reservation, whether it was uh, uh, refundable, non-refundable, and, and, and again, whether or not um, Expedia took some positions and informed uh, the customer that uh, the uh, reservation had been made, that they had to go after Hilton for any kind of issues that, that resolved. And what happens here? As we know, is is in. The, I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. I do a lot of uh, uh, AAA commercial or, or consumer arbitrations, and you get on in, in January of 2024. You go to Expedia and and you hit uh, the the disclaimer, the the terms of service, and also then. You're, you're now connecting with Hilton. Hilton changes its terms and conditions on January 1st. What, you know whether it's refundable issues, what, uh, the types of of, of uh, reservations being made, and by clicking and accepting and moving forward, you agree to those terms of service as changed. And so there's uh, uh, that's going on. Um, the um, um, like I said, there's a lot of of, of things were going on here. Um, the um, uh, Appellants uh, refer to a case Ambrosia versus Chicago Athletic Club that talks about when you give assent to these terms of service, you're bound by the actual terms, uh, even if they change. Um, the uh, issues here include, as you mentioned in the introduction, whether Expedia violated public policy by uh, allowing these changes of terms. Um, the Uh, um, As you mentioned, Pat, too, this case, uh, second one we've covered in recent times, uh, punitive damages were awarded here. Um, The amount, I think, came up not in uh, direct argument but in rebuttal. I think that the amount here that the appellant is arguing or or the uh, appellee is arguing is not significant is uh, around $7,000 and change. I forget the exact amount, but it was a pretty small amount of money that was at stake here. Uh, but it does involve the attorney's fees for uh, the consumer. Uh, was it? Uh, w- was this uh, Burdette? Was he on the panel?
2: Burkett? No, I don't Burkett. think so. Because this is, yeah, no, I, I don't think Burkett was on. He might've been, he
1: might've I, I Sometimes you can't tell the voices, but uh, on rebuttal, I thought it was funny because the ending of this case with uh, Whatever justice it was, I thought it was Briquette, but maybe not. But uh, what, what he told the appellant's lawyer to do uh, was, was uh, I encourage you to bill you the client for every penny spent on this case. Um, and, and not sure why he's counsel for anybody to, to keep track of all the money they've spent. Um, there also uh, was, was an instance here. Uh, there was only, uh, there, there was a breach of contract claim, I think, Pat, It somehow got dropped at the lower court and wasn't entirely clear uh, if it was dismissed or or that the plaintiff voluntarily dismissed it. But the only claim here was was uh, consumer fraud. Consumer fraud, uh, which you know is uh, we've talked about consumer fraud before in here as well. Uh, Consumer fraud is a very pretty high standard to prove that uh, you know a a vendor such as Expedia um, knowingly and intentionally. Uh, made misstatements and committed fraud on the consumer. There was a lot of questions about that, about when, what knowledge Expedia had of the change in policy of Expedia, or of Hilton, uh, and, and a lot of questions for the appellant uh, when, when the appellant argued uh, about kind of that timing uh, as well for the appellee. What, what knowledge or intent would, would Expedia have had here uh, to have done something? But again, I think part of the issue here is this manner in which Expedia pays and uh, from the consumer standpoint and from from just general knowledge, I I don't know how in the hell you would uh, have any knowledge of that's how things work or how you would be able to verify that you actually have a reservation. Um, As you said, there was a reservation here because on Expedia or Hilton or anything, any website you go to for travel, you get an email that says you're booked for Yep. a room for January 6th or whatever night 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 of uh, hotel it is and um, you know that that may or may not have the full terms and conditions of that hotel reservation but a uh, very interesting case here uh, and you know I think I think then uh, the consumer has a, a tough issue here but we'll we'll see what happens with the the appellate court when they come out with the ruling.
2: Indeed, it, it was. It's interesting that they also they dropped Hilton from the case. Yeah. It's also that this was a this was a small claims case, and it was obvious that Expedia did not uh, hire a lawyer that is typically in small claims. No, uh, they hired one of their big firms. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't t- I don't know which one, but it was quite plain that they had hired a big firm, because there's a lot at stake for their entire business model if they're going to be liable every time there is an issue like this where the hotel changes the refunding policy and they aren't covered by their terms of service.
1: Yeah. Um, This is not just a $7,000 exposure.
2: No, 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 this is orders of many orders of magnitude larger than the $7,000, which is why they have spent as much as they have likely to defend this case uh, and need a ruling that, you know, because it isn't just this case. It's, it's it's gonna it may set a precedent for how these things are dealt with uh, more more broadly. Um, so it's uh, it, this is an important this is an important case uh, for the business model um, that uh, Expedia has. So uh, with that or and all these types of vendors. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Axis versus American Specialty.
0: Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners! If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Welcome back to segment three of episode one eighty-seven. Quote, this case presents the question whether Axis paid a loss for which it was not liable or in a manner that rendered its settlement contribution voluntary, such as to foreclose a request for indemnity. American specialty requests summary judgment for this reason. The court grants summary judgment accordingly, end quote. That is how the district court framed the issue in Axis versus American specialty. The case was argued before the Seventh Circuit recently. In contrast, access access from the issue on appeal as follows Quote Whether Indiana law requires a party seeking contractual indemnification for settlement payment to demonstrate in the absence of any express contractual condition that it tendered a tendered defense to the indemnitor or was actually liable on the underlying claim as the district court concluded, or whether the party seeking indemnification must instead demonstrate one, it satisfied the terms of the party's indemnification agreement, two, it had potential liability and three, the indemnitor had notice an opportunity to participate in the settlement or, alternatively, that the settlement was fair and reasonable as Sequa Coatings Corporation versus Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District, 796 Northeast 2nd, 1216, Indiana Court of Appeal, 2003, and other cases actually say, end quote, access set forth the facts as follows. Quote, in 2015, Access Insurance Company found itself facing two separate but related disputes. The first dispute involved a claim for insurance made by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which is a member club of the National Football League. The Buccaneers claimed they were entitled to access employers' liability coverage under an insurance policy that American Specialty Insurance and Risk Services, Inc., had issued to the team on Access paper in 2013, coverage the Buccaneers had specifically requested. The Buccaneers' claim for ex- excess EL coverage arose out of allegations of negligence made by the team's former place kicker, Lawrence Tynes, who claimed he had contracted a career ending infection in the Buccaneers' locker room. In response to the Buccaneers' claim for coverage, Axis immediately notified American Specialty that it was reserving its right to seek contractual indemnification for any losses it might incur as a result of the apparent errors and omissions American Specialty had made in quoting, underwriting, binding, and issuing the excess EL policy. In responding to the buccaneers coverage claim this led to the second dispute over the next 18 months Axis twice reasserted its right to seek indemnification and letters american specialty indisputably received american specialty however never responded to either of those communications in quote pat with that long introduction of Axis's position tell us about this case
2: so it's appropriate we're talking about the uh, case involving the buccaneers though not the buccaneers directly um, on a day when they are playing in the divisional playoffs against uh, the Detroit Lions. can't remember if they're the early game or the late game, but they are playing today. Um, and I think they're big dogs in the case. Um, I think well think so. They're they big dogs in this case because they got, you know, this dispute arises out of, uh, you know, an alleged bacteria or some sort of infection that uh, this, this place kicker, Tynes got. Um, I think we can make all kinds of jokes about the, the kicker getting an illness or getting hurt. There's that's a, that's a target rich environment uh, for the kicker. If I remember right, times is a good kicker. Um, and uh, uh, but yeah, he's still a kicker. He was, he, he is, he's, wasn't his, yeah. Yes. Yeah, st- he's still a kicker, but anyway, he suffered this, allegedly suffered this uh, infection. If I remember right, Marion Hosa, uh, the four Blackhawks player had an infection. That caused him to, to I think ultimately led to the end of his career. So watch out for the MRSA. I think that was what what uh, Hosa had. I don't know what Tynes got. Um, but anyway, um, this is a case that involves that. There's American Specialty seems to be somewhere between a broker and an insurer. Dan, am I if I got this they're, right?
1: They're, uh, Pat. I know a little bit about them. They're they're kind of a program manager uh, type for a lot of sports facilities, fitness centers. Uh, they do kind of the package policies for, you know, franchisees of, you know, the anytime fitness or whatever. Some of, some of that stuff. I, I, I'm not sure exactly their portfolio, but yeah, they're kind of, they're. they're so this they're
2: more, would be a, when you say a package policy, this would be CGL, business uh, property, e, uh, cyber, employers liability. They, they do the whole comp, package. The whole, the whole bit.
1: And the and the reason they they're they're kind of experts in uh, the sports and fitness arena, so they they tend to have clients that you know it may be the NCAA or, or things like that associations with any kind of sports. Um, so they're, they're they're yeah they're like a broker slash MGA slash more risk consultant. I right. think all wrapped in one.
2: Right. So they sounds like they have binding authority. It sounds um, like it. And when you say MGA, for those that don't know, that's a managing general agent. So that's that's an entity that has the authority to produce on behalf of the company. The extent of their authority typically doesn't, may or may not extend to binding authority, but uh, depends upon the relationship. It sounds like they had that kind of authority here. And they were specifically asked to have a particular kind of insurance, this excess EL, which would be employer's liability coverage, um, which is kind of like a uh, workers comp type coverage. Um, but not exactly. Uh, but th- th- this would cover for injuries. Usually the CGL policy doesn't cover for injuries to employees. That's a different kind of, right. so this is for injuries to employees. But in the uh, in the NFL, correct me if I'm wrong, those guys don't have comp. You know, you don't, you don't get comp I don't they're think they're do. covered under the collective bargaining agreement. Right. They don't have you know the, the the clubs provide insurance and they cover the health care for work related injuries. You know it, it, it's it's always strange. You know we think about you know when a football player goes and plays and, and think that he blows out his knee. It's a work related injury. Yeah, he's at work. I mean, right. That's his job. Right. Uh, you know that's what he's doing. Uh, that's how he that's how he he makes a living. So it but comp. It, because of the collective bargaining agreement, that's—I don't think it's—it's it's comp, it's in, in, under the usual state scheme. I think somehow they're outside of that, and this seems so. to have been like an excess policy to help them cover in the event that you had injuries to, um, uh, to one of your employees. In this case, a player, uh, and so you could see the kind of specialized risk that they, you know, that why you would need someone that has experience in this. Because if I am at the office and I trip and fall, it's comp. There's no, you know, that that's how I would get compensated, uh, such as it is under under workers comp. Uh, but if you're a ball player, and you're under a collective bargaining agreement, typically it's it's a different it's a different situation um, under those under those agreements. Um, and so they needed to have uh, apparently his injury was so bad because he not only you know you got to think about this, you know, it, when an iron worker gets hurt, yeah, he's got some lost wages. And when a football player, even a kicker, gets hurt, his lost wages are, uh, shall we say, substantial. Right. Uh, and so he's got to make sure, or you've got to, that, that's a lot of liability. Uh, you know, Kickers aren't the highest paid players in the league, but they still make it seven figures. And right. that's a lot of money. And So your standard policy isn't going to cover Seven figures in lost wages, which is, I suspect, once the infection was resolved, is the bulk of Tynes' claim. If he's saying that it was a uh, career-ending injury, and if he had however many years, and you could get an expert to say how long he had left and how much he was likely to make, and yada yada, and you're into the you're you're into the eight figures very quickly, right. um, uh, on a player if he, especially because while kickers. Don't make very much in any one year, or as much as you know the best you know skill position players or best defenders. They play a lot longer. <laughs> so if they're good, they play into their well into their thirties, and sometimes and sometimes uh, you know late into their thirties if they're if they're uh, particularly good. I can't remember how old Times was when things when, when he when he was forced to retire. But those guys play for a long time, so you can see there's a lot of exposure uh, here and not having that coverage would be a real problem. So then that brings us to the dispute between the two companies. And and essentially this was a, a broker malpractice claim, uh, and having to defend this thing and what, what responsibility if any Axis or sorry, American specialty had, they were told just to stay on the sideline, but that didn't mean that they didn't have to pony up. So it's this very strange, uh, dynamic between the two. Um, there's a lot of discussions about a mediation and a, and a, there's a term used a market solution, which is to say, how are you carrier and broker going to, going to work this out between you? Uh, I've certainly had situations where the broker is, you know, uh, their client is the insured and the insurance company takes a position that the broker doesn't like. And so they have to find a solution because then the, the insured, blames the broker for the insurance company having denied the claim. And so they come up with a market solution, uh, which is a way for everybody to share in the risk. Um, uh, So the, this is a really complex case, but a very interesting one, especially with regards to tender, you know, typically you don't, you know, you typically, once you have notice of a claim, that potentially falls within coverage, that triggers your duty to defend. But American specialty isn't an insurance company. They're a broker or some hybrid thereof. And so did them saying, well, you told us to sit on the sidelines. So we did. Now you want us to be involved and you're blaming us for not being involved. I don't, you know, it's like, what do you want us to do? Uh, We're either in this thing or we're out of this thing. You got to make a decision and you don't get to, you don't get to do what you've done. So what are, what are your thoughts, Dan?
1: I agree with that, Pat, very interesting case. And uh, Judge Hamilton, I think, in one of his comments, uh, he talked about the fairly unusual feature of this case. And I think he was referring to some of the things you just talked about, that this is a kind of a unique situation and, and uh, um, an interesting set of facts. And uh, so I think, you know, in, in oral arguments uh, before the Seventh Circuit, I think some of that came out that this is a, a difficult case and, and uh, involves a lot of... Uh, a lot of issues. And, uh, so that'd be interesting to see what the seventh circuit does with this case.
2: Indeed. Uh, the appropriate that judge Hamilton was on the, was on the panel. I, I couldn't tell if judge Pryor was on it. Um, but I, I, I mentioned that because they're both from Indiana. Uh, right. and so they may have some insight into the, uh, uh, in, in, into the, uh, Indiana, uh, Indiana law on this topic. So I, I I don't know if uh, um, but you yeah. mentioned Judge Hamilton maybe you think oh this is being decided under Indiana. also I'm not sure why Indiana law applies uh, no. Tampa Bay is definitely not in Indiana uh, no. so I'm not sure why maybe American Specialty is is in Indianapolis or 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 someplace in Indiana I, I don't know so but they, there wasn't a dispute over which which state's law applied there just was yeah what what is the law of Indiana. So. The
1: other thing I, I always laugh at is, is that the football clubs they're referred to as clubs as if they're like the local rugby team, you know, worth billions of dollars, you know, the contracts and stuff, right. Yeah. The Tampa Bay club. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of the, the NFL. Well, we, co- had that, we had that this
2: week. We had the, that this week in uh, the Arbogast versus Chicago Cubs. There are the Chicago, they are the Chicago Cubs national league baseball club. Right. Really? <laughs> I mean, have you seen that palace they have up on the north side? Right. I mean, right. you just, you know, right. club. there's some guys got together. They throw the ball around 162 <laughs> times a year. You know, play no some, big deal. Play some pepper. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's all. They, <laughs> you know, they spend millions, hundreds of millions. They're a club. That's yep. okay, an order of magnitude off. Uh, you know, some guys get together and play, uh, play soccer on Sundays. That's a club. Yep. You know, this is a bit more than a club. <laughs> it's just funny. They, they use this. It's a very quaint term to use. It is. Um, uh, so with that, that brings us to our B.I., BIPA, GIPA, IPA, all your <laughs> acronyms. That, we'll just we rename this to the Judge Easterbrook section of the, of the show. There you um, go. Someone got themselves in trouble this week um, in one of the cases we're going to talk about here. The Seventh Circuit heard uh, oral argument in a BIPA case, uh, the... A uh, case that they heard was Thermoflex Waukegan LLC versus Mitsui Sumitomo Insurance USA. Uh, this was a this is a BIPA case and our BIPA coverage case. And the Seventh Circuit is struggling with uh, the conflict that now exists with the visual Pack case and their Windalco decision. Um, uh, and so, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? about this
1: case sure and as, as you mentioned there's a divergence the seventh circuit uh issued uh their, their case Wendelco and then the illinois supreme court uh or the, the illinois appellate the court illinois appellate Court. yeah if the illinois uh, supreme
2: court had done something this would be very easy
1: yeah uh the illinois appellate court came out with a uh holding a visual pack uh that there is not uh coverage uh for Uh, BIPA claims under uh, an insurance uh, uh, policy provision and when Delco had indicated uh, That there is in fact uh, coverage and so this will uh, Eventually get resolved we've talked about this that the Illinois Supreme Court will at some point Probably with visual pack or some other case will eventually get to this issue and we'll find out definitively uh, what our Illinois 7 have to say about this issue and the, the uh, question is, Pat, the, 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 as we talked about with other BIPA cases in the Illinois Supreme Court, is we, we have no idea what what they're going to say about this because they've uh, been pretty expansive on BIPA uh, so far, and so we'll see uh, if they agree with Visual Pack and the Illinois appellate court, or if they take the position of Windelco and the Seventh Circuit and uh, announce that the Seventh Circuit actually got right what the Illinois Supreme Court would do.
2: Yeah. So with that, um, we also have a, as Dan, or we also have a uh, BIPA BI, or sorry, a COVID-19 BI case um, from the Washington Supreme Court. And you say, well, why are we talking about this? Especially since the Washington Supreme Court has decided this issue, that there's uh, no coverage, uh, why are we still deciding this issue? Well, that's because they decided a, uh, they rejected insurers' form non-convenience argument, and they affirmed the uh, enforcement of a stay on a Cook County coverage case arising out of this this, uh, COVID-BI claim. This involves 60 uh, colleges from across the country, many of whom are from east of the Mississippi, so naturally they filed in Washington State, where three of their number are from. Because it, at the early days of this, you would have picked, if you were going to pick a state that would be the most favorable to insurers, I'm sorry, insurance, Washington state wasn't a bad bet. Um, and so, but that turned out not to be so. But in this case, they found that the, the trial court was proper in denying the form non motion and enforced that the insurers cannot advance, um, in, uh, could, um, could not advance the case in Cook County. There's a line in the in the opinion where they describe Illinois as a heartland jurisdiction and Cook County as a heartland court. That's uh, from the I think from the, the uh, insurer's brief arguing why this should be decided in Cook County where you know Dan and I have practiced here between us uh, probably close to 50 years uh, showing our age but yep. Uh, yep. Uh, practiced here for a long time and Insurance coverage is is the usual uh, way of things. I, I was preparing. Uh, we have we have trial roundtables. I have a trial coming up next month with one of my colleagues. In we're trying to explain, you know, how things work, and and because it's a bench trial, and they're like, well, will the judge be familiar with this? Like, yes, he's a chancellor, yes. half his docket, and for the la- he's been on the bench for like ten years. Um, Half his docket has been insurance coverage cases. He's very well familiar with the issues here. Whether he agrees with us or not, that's a different kettle of fish, but he understands the issues. Um, and so in trying to explain our system, we've got a specialized group of judges, 16 of them, that, uh, as they say, a third to a half or so of their docket are insurance coverage cases. A commercial, Not surprising, a commercial center like Chicago's got a lot of coverage issues being litigated, and that's one feature uh, of it is that we've got a court specially made, um, as Judge Easterbrook likes to say that federal judges are generalists, state court ju- state court judges are specialists. This is one of the areas where they have specialized uh, a group of judges um, on a particularly important and complex area uh, of the law. So with that, that brings us to our predictions. Sure to go wrong. We didn't really have any this week, uh, mm-hmm. and predictions. So let's get right to our predictions for this year, this week. Uh, downs. Versus Peters, I, I, I have to punt. I have no idea between the procedure and the. I think the procedure is the real problem. I, okay. I, I, I really think Judge Justice Doherty was not pleased with the procedure, and I don't know if he's going to be able. He's going. He's going to. And I, I don't think he's sure what the standard review is. I, I, I think. I think it's going to get remanded to say, "Back, do this again." Um, and 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 uh, so I, that's what I think is going to happen. But I think we punt. You okay with punting, Dan? I, I
1: agree. There's too much going on here. It's so yeah. so many issues, including the procedural.
2: Right. Well, uh, Fort versus Expedia. I think the punitive damage award. I think is going to get reversed. Agree. Um, I, I I I don't know if Expedia is going to win the case outright, though. Um, that as they have asked, they've asked for judgment to be entered in their favor. Uh, but
1: I, I, did, <laughs> I think the punitive damages get reversed right? just, to, just because I, I don't, I, I, I think the threshold we talked about earlier, I think it's, uh, you know, that it's a pretty high threshold to be assessed punitive damages and, uh, well, and, sure and there's also there's the calculation's wrong and the calculation's
2: right. wrong. Right. So unlike the Sega's case, there actually were damages found. Right. But the but the the metric of those was all was all wrong.
1: Yep.
2: Um so and that's another that, that's under the under the low case. I think it was discussed at the Sege's case. They didn't reach that because the you had no compensatory damage. Here you have compensatory damages. Um I, I I don't know what happens to the main claim though. I don't either. I would punt on that one too. Okay, and, and and we're gonna go three for three. I can't. I don't know what the hell's gonna happen in this Axis versus American Specialty case. I think we punt on that one. <laughs> I too. agree.
1: I think this but, is the first time we uh, probably pun it three times. Where... Yeah,
2: I have no idea. They, these cases all raise really interesting issues, and we have no idea what's going to happen because there's right. so many things going on. Uh, the courts could go so many different directions. So we're gonna check it out. Right.
1: They could go um, narrow, expansive. We don't know on what basis they'll do anything. All
2: interesting, potentially really important in the Expedia case. Down, all three of these could be really important cases. Right. Um, I, I just don't know where they're going. Uh, a lot easier picking uh, some of the Supreme Court cases that were argued this week. We'll, we'll talk about in coming weeks, both Illinoisans and, and uh, Supreme Court of the United States. A lot easier picking those. Yeah. Uh, I think we know the justices are on some of those. But we'll we'll, we'll get to those in coming weeks. Yeah. Um, so with that, our rule of the week, Dan, why don't you, why don't you tell us about our rule of the week?
1: Sure, and this comes from the uh, Quail Run case, which is an appellate case in Illinois. Uh, one of the justices, uh, at some point in the argument, admonished counsel. For at the, the very appellant. end. Yeah, at the very end. It was, it ju- was, it was yeah. Justice Zinoff. Yeah. Uh, admonished counsel for the appellant for not using the prescribed background for the oral argument, which was conducted by Zoom. And it's a reminder, as we've talked about repeatedly, in the uh, this being the fourth uh, season of our podcasts. You have to know the court's rules, procedures, and protocols, whether it's on Zoom, in person, etc if if, if, uh, if, if if a court has rules about what you're supposed to use, uh, you'd be uh, very uh, smart and wise to adhere to whatever that is. You don't want to, uh, and not that this will affect the case, but you don't want to be in a position where your clients could be impacted by things that should have been just known.
2: Yeah, and the, they typically will send you the backgrounds and then ask you to use them. I, I, I tried, I've I said this before, I tried the first Cook County bench trial back in June of 2020, and the judge gave us, uh, Judge Mitchell, now Justice Mitchell, gave us backgrounds he wanted us to use, and opposing counsel could not get the background to work, and he worked with his clerks and worked with his clerks. So the exception is if you give the good the old college try and you still can't get it to work, the course. Okay. In this case, I didn't get the sense that he gave the college try. Um, but if you they're like, just fine, just, let's just go. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with it, but at least you've tried. Um, and and so you, you've got to show that you, you at least, uh, read them. You tried if it doesn't work, you know, you can't be, you can be forgiven for the technology, not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, it's, it's, uh, not ideal. Uh, you should, Try to make it work. At this point, I think most folks were almost four years into the four years since March of 2020. uh, You should probably know how to use Zoom pretty well by now. Uh, But sometimes it doesn't cooperate, Uh, as evidenced by our experiences last week with our technology in Riverside. uh, Sometimes things don't work the way you want it to. And so you have to you have to make make adjustments. So with that, we'll take our leave and we'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast.
3: I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and Panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast. We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.